Friends, there are folks who don't need a lot of introduction, and in Memphis, Ronnie Stevens doesn't need a lot of introduction. Ronnie, welcome to Amen. We are excited to hear what the Lord has to say to us through you. Thank you. So I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard. In the beautiful Savior's name, the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you have a Bible, and I hope you brought it. What good is a sword which is always sheathed? Get the thing out and bring it with you. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. There are lots of things in the verses we're going to read, but we're only going to talk about four of them. Matthew 11 beginning in verse 2 and going to verse 11. In honor of God and his word, let's stand at the reading of the word of God, shall we? Matthew 11, beginning in verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the God of the storm. And we thank you that we're here this morning and we're dry in this room and that we have power and light and that we have the most powerful thing and the instrument which is more full of light than anything in the universe, the thing which can give us more power than anything in the universe, your word. And we pray that you would teach us to be suffused with this light and this power, that we might shine we might display a heavenly energy, that may, we might make a difference in the world until we see face to face him who is light, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Now the first thing I want to say about this passage is that it constitutes a kind of indirect proof that the Gospels are true, that the claims of Scripture must be true. They cannot be false. And I would offer the argument in this way. Let's assume for a moment that the Gospels were contrived. Let's say there was a conspiracy, conscious or unconscious, conscious to to cobble together accounts which would be convincing, accounts which were embellished, accounts which were exaggerated, and maybe in some instances accounts which were wholly fabricated. Now, there is a group of scholars, falsely so-called, who've been let loose in the world today like a wolf upon the fold who actually think that. And they advance those arguments. Well, let's assume for a moment that they're right. Well, if they are right, the question I have is, 
Whence cometh this? Think about for a moment what Matthew is telling us. He's telling us that John the Baptist, who was the prophesied forerunner of Jesus, who was a blood relative of Jesus, who baptized Jesus, who introduced Jesus in Israel in Matthew chapter 3, he's telling us that John the Baptist asked the question, are you really he? Now, if the thing were contrived, if the thing were made up, Why was that included? Why was that made up? Why was that put there? It could only serve to weaken the claims of Jesus of Nazareth. To think that John the Baptist, who was full of the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, would apparently have doubts as to the messianic identity of Jesus of Nazareth would be a tremendous argument against Jesus' claims. Why on earth would the evangelist include such a thing? Just for this reason, my friends. Because the thing is not contrived. Because the thing is not fabricated. They were not picking and choosing, only selecting those items which would make their case stronger or would make them look good, or would make people more inclined to say, yeah, it's got to be Jesus. No, 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 no. They were simply reporting what happened. They were giving an artless and unvarnished historical uh, narrative of what happened during those three years of Jesus' public ministry. And some of the things don't seem to fit. Chief in this category is the so-called cry of dereliction on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why did you leave me here? Where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Can you imagine putting that in? If you're picking and choosing... Can you imagine how damaging that would be to the untutored mind, to someone who had not been taught everything that means, that the, the theological reason for the necessity of that cry. Can you imagine how bad that looks? That somehow Jesus was not in touch with God at all, that he was bewildered at the end, and to and this is one of the things which inspired Schweitzer's thesis in his 1913 book, Quest for the Historical Jesus. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, I didn't mean for this to happen. Well, the reality is that the Lord Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. And in those days, the Psalms weren't numbered. And when you wanted to make a reference to Psalm 22, you didn't say Psalm 22 because there wasn't any 22 there. The way you would designate the psalm that you were pointing people to is you would quote the first verse. And the first verse of Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Psalm 22 is the prophecy of the death of the Messiah. In Psalm 22, we learn that the Messiah will die by having his hands and feet pierced. The psalm was written 800 years before crucifixion was known in the world. And it was written 1,000 years before the Lord Jesus Christ died a death by crucifixion. And so when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was Jesus' way of saying, hey, this is it. 
This is the fulfillment of Psalm 22. But, I mean, there's much more there than that. It wasn't only a reference to Psalm 22. It was also an actual experience of abandonment by God. What was Jesus doing on the cross? Jesus was taking the punishment owed to you and me as sinners. He was absorbing in his royal person, in his actual body, the wrath of the Father. He was going to hell for us. Hell is the place where God is not. Hell is the place where the comforting and consoling and confirming experience of God is not. Jesus tasted that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the most theological verse in the New Testament, says this, He, meaning God the Father, made Him, meaning God the Son, to be as sin, to be regarded as sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ was regarded as an unclean thing, as a sinful thing, so that we might be regarded as a righteous thing. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now Habakkuk 1 says that God cannot look upon sin with pleasure. And I believe that the cry of dereliction not only signaled the passage in the Old Testament, Psalm 22, So that Jesus was saying, you know, that psalm is about the death of the Messiah. And you see the drama of the actual death of the Messiah unfolding before your very eyes. But it also referenced the New Testament theological explanation of what was happening on the cross. What you see now is my experience of the sinner's abandonment by God. I'm feeling it. I'm tasting it. And I'm not merely quoting a Bible verse. But this is my felt experience. That I am abandoned by God at death. Oswald Chambers said, sometimes when the martyrs die, we have a habit of saying, oh, their experience was just like Christ. Oswald Chambers said, it was not. He said, when the martyrs die in testimony to faith in Jesus, when they pay the ultimate price for their faith, Never at any more time, at any other time in their existence, are they more conscious of God's presence with them. Jesus died alone. Jesus died abandoned. That was the hell that he took for us. Now, most people who heard the accounts or read the text, they didn't know all that stuff. And the gospel writers don't telegraph the blow. They don't explain all that stuff. They just say, you know, while he was hanging there, he said, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And if we don't know any better, we say with one of the smartest men who ever lived, but who was a theological idiot, we say with Schweitzer, oh, see there? It got out of hand. He didn't mean for this to happen. He was just a man after all. Think of the security of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Think of the faith they had. And not to lay their pen aside and say, well, you know, we can't say that. Somebody might take that the wrong way, but the Holy Spirit inspiring, moving, this is what happened, write it. This is not presented to us in the form of of an apologetic. In other words, we don't get any hit when Matthew's writing this. Hey, let me prove to you that our claims are true by freely admitting to you something which will probably be counterproductive to our, our whole enterprise. No, he doesn't come at it this way. He says, here's what happened. John was in prison, and he sent his disciples and say... Are we supposed to be sure that you're the one? 
Okay, so that's the first thing we want to learn from this passage. That this is an indirect proof of the truth of the gospel claims. Now, the second thing we want to think about is the wrong way to process our suffering. And the reality is that it's our suffering which matters most to us, isn't it? We hear that someone has cancer. I have a good friend right now who is being operated on this very moment. He's my exact age. He's in Baptist East. He's a Christian leader in this community. He's a headmaster of Evangelical Christian School. He's got cancer. Say a prayer for Steve Collins before you leave this building. And that's bad, and it distracts us, and it preoccupies us. But it doesn't preoccupy us like getting um, a positive biopsy with our name on it. Samuel Johnson said, we are more concerned with the pain in our little finger than we are with the report of the deaths of 1,000 people whom we do not know. When we suffer, then our perspective on God has changed. The first great Bible teacher that I ever listened to, and God used him to bring me to faith in Christ, said this. I heard him say this when I was 20 years old. The reason we lose so many of our children to the Christian faith is because we do not prepare them to suffer. And suffering is a thing which gets in between us and God. And what was happening in John the Baptist's life, he knew he was the forerunner. He knew Jesus was the Messiah. And now that the Messiah had come, he never factored in the possibility of his own suffering as something which could be compatible with Jesus' presence. It just never occurred to him. He just thought, now, once the Messiah gets here, everything is going to be okay. And he's rotting in Herod's prison, awaiting decapitation. How did this happen? And could it possibly be true that the man I baptized could be God's son and the one we've all been waiting for, and I could be suffering like this? How could the control of God, how could the reign of Christ be compatible with something in my life that hurts so bad. Because you see, the presence of Jesus was not only uh, an authentication of Jesus' claims, it was also an authentication of John the Baptist's claims. At one level, Jesus didn't need to be baptized by John because John's baptism was a sinner's baptism. One reason Jesus submitted himself to a sinner's baptism, and by the way, John the Baptist knew it, remember? You see in the beginning of the accounts about John the Baptist in Matthew 3, you see that when the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees showed up, he said to them, you bunch of snakes. John the Baptist's ministry was not what we call a seeker-sensitive ministry. <laughs> You bunch of snakes. What are you running from? And why are you running in my direction? And his great concern was the concern of hypocrisy. He knew that his baptism was a baptism of repentance for sin. And he knew that these guys didn't think they were sinners. And he knew that whatever their motive was to be baptized by him that it could not have included repentance because they didn't think they had any sin to repent of. So basically he's saying, you hypocrites. Make sure your life is consistent 
with this ritual that you want to submit to. Bring forth practice consistent with your profession. Bring forth fruit which is consistent with repentance. That's what he said to them. Now, so he's concerned about hypocrisy. He's concerned that they're just pretending. And then Jesus shows up, and you know what? He has the exact same concern. That's ironic that his reluctance to baptize Jesus was based upon the same concern as his reluctance to baptize the Pharisees and Sadducees. That is, he didn't want to be hypocritical. He didn't see how it could be right to baptize Jesus with a baptism for repentance of sin because the fact was Jesus actually did not have any sin to repent from. So how could it possibly be right that Jesus should be baptized? And that's what John says when he walks up. Hey, I can't baptize you. You're the one who should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, we're going to do it this time. That we might fulfill all righteousness. What he meant by that was this. I'm going to live a life. I'm not only going to live a life of refusing sin and never giving in to sin. But I'm also going to live a life, even though I never sin, I'm going to give a, live a life of identification with the sinner. And a part of my identification with the sinner is to submit to the baptism that you are administering to sinners. And of course, his ultimate identification with the sinner, which would not have been necessary according to the life he lived, was death. The wages of sin is death. The only reason we've got to die is because we're sinners. Well, he never sinned. Why should he have to die? Because his whole, the purpose of his incarnate life was to identify with sinners, beginning with his baptism and ending with his death. Now, John the Baptist not only had that experience, but think about this. John the Baptist witnessed one of the greatest miracles. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more in a moment. One of the greatest miracles ever reported in Scripture. One of the great truths of our faith is this inexplicable Trinitarian reality. That when the Jews and Muslims accuse us of being polytheists, that is false. We are not polytheists. We are monotheists. We believe in one God. But the only God who exists, exists in a reality of Trinitarian personhood. That is, the one true God is triune. Not three gods, one God. Not one person, three persons. Now, of course, that staggers our math. And forget about the analogies. All the analogies break down. It's a unique reality without analogy. Just as God himself is a unique reality without analogy. The way you and I learn is by analogy. This is like this. But God is incomparable. In the set called God, there's only one entity. He is the God of Israel. And he exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a mathematical conundrum. But one thing that will help is to remember that God is not from our dimension. God is the creator of our dimension. God is not subject to our mathematical realities. God is the designer of our mathematical realities. In our dimension, mathematical reality demands that three cannot be one and one cannot be three. They are mutually exclusive options. But God is not subject to that law. God is not. I was with, I was uh, in Ostrava, Czech Republic, about six weeks ago, home of Ivan Lindel, and there was a student there, and we we were in a Q and A. There are lots of atheists in the Czech Republic, and a student said to me, "Well, doesn't even God need energy?" And I said, "No. God doesn't need anything. God is not a carbon-based." life form. He's not. And the reality who is God is three persons. Now I said all that to say this. 
John the Baptist and those who were gathered at the baptism of Jesus not only heard about that reality, but those witnesses to the baptism of Jesus perceived that reality with the senses. As far as I know, the only time it ever happened. Because they heard the voice of the Father with a sense of hearing. They beheld the person of the Son in his incarnate being with all the senses. And they saw God the third person descending as a dove from heaven. Now, John the Baptist experienced all of that from a front row seat. And yet he said, are you the one or should we expect someone else? How could that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Because he had the wrong perspective on his own suffering. Suffering is a thing that can derange us. Suffering is a thing that distorts. If we only look at our suffering and consider no other reality except the reality of our suffering, agnosticism is inevitable. It's inevitable. And John the Baptist at this moment is only reckoning through his suffering. This is looking at the universe from the bottom up. It's looking at the universe from my suffering, which is the thing at the bottom, which is the reality which is engulfing me. Much better to look at the universe through the sovereignty of God, that there is no suffering unappointed, that there's no suffering irredeemable, that there's no suffering without purpose. And the, 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 the upper reality is God's sovereignty. The lower reality is my suffering, and the middle reality is my sanctification. Suffering is never meant to beat me down and to take me down. Suffering is meant to lift me up and to make me like Jesus. And it will if I give my suffering over to the Father. The greatest speaker I've ever heard, I hate to say this in a men's group, but I've got to be honest, I'm pretty conservative on my views of women in ministry. Greatest speaker I ever heard was a woman. I heard her in person in 1983 at Ben Lippin Conference in Asheville. 1976, I sent a group of new Christians to Urbana to the great every three-year InterVarsity student conference on missions, and I knew there were two stupendous speakers there. And when those kids came back from that conference, all they could talk about was Helen Rosevere, and that wasn't one of the two speakers. I'd never heard of her. And I thought, what are you talking about? And But, of course, I got the tapes. And I was astounded. And then in 1983, I was able to hear her in person. 1982 80, or 83. He's saying 82, he knows. So um, she was at Ben Lupin and... I, I never heard a better speaker before or since. And I was trying to figure out why she was so good. And I think it was a combination of three things. Great gifts. Well, we expect great gifts at Urbana. If you get invited to a place like Urbana, you've probably got great gifts. But there was more than great gifts, there was great commitment. But a few times in our Christian life, we see great gifts with, a, with great commitment. But Helen Rosevere, with a medical degree from Cambridge, they didn't give away medical degrees to women at Cambridge in the 40s. She had to be stupendously overqualified. She had to be an intellectual giant. Great gifts with great commitment, with great suffering. We don't often encounter those three in combination in one person. Instead of settling down to a middle-class existence in socialist Britain as a physician, she went to Africa. And in 1964, she was captured in the rebellion. And for five months, she was beaten and raped. Now, I don't know anything about her personal life, but I do know she never married, and I think it's a good guess that that is the only 
um, intimacy she's ever known with a man. And when she spoke at Ben Lippin, there was a little refrain in one of her messages. She spoke on Jonah. And the refrain was her thoughts during the rapes. And what she did during those repeated assaults was she lifted up a hymn of silent praise to the Lord. And this was the chorus that she would repeat at the end of each verse. Lord, I thank you for trusting me with this experience. Even though you haven't chosen to show me the reason why. That's why she was a force. That's why she was the best speaker I've ever heard. Because that's what she did with her suffering. Now, John the Baptist was staggered by his suffering. And he didn't look at the sovereignty of God. And he didn't look at his own sanctification, the fact that he was being made like Jesus. And there were some critical errors which constituted doubt. We also have a terrible habit when we suffer of believing that God's love for us is inversely proportional to our suffering. That is, we make the error, which shows an ignorance of the whole Bible, of believing that if I'm suffering this much, God wouldn't love me very much. Because if he loved me very much, surely I wouldn't be suffering like this. I say in ignorance of the whole Bible, who do you think pleased God more, Cain or Abel? Who do you think pleased God more, Joseph or his brothers? Who do you think pleased God more, Jesus or Barabbas? You see how, what folly it is to reckon from that sort of calculation that I'm suffering so much that God must not love me very much? We don't learn that in the Bible, do we? Quite the contrary. The one who suffered the most was loved the most. And his name was Jesus. I think it was T.S. Eliot. I keep remembering this little poetic couplet. My mind is curled around these images and cling. The notion of an infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. I guess Eliot, I don't know, somebody in the room will know, was talking about Jesus. That infinitely suffering person who was infinitely loved by his father. I notice a few people in the room have been with me when we studied John 11 together, the um, story of the raising of Lazarus. And it's very interesting that we, we, we think about how different Mary and Martha were. But that notion that we have of how different they were, and we characterize Mary as the more pious one, the more noble one spiritually, that notion is not consistent with all the biblical data. Because when Jesus arrives in Bethany, and Lazarus had been dead four days, it's Martha who goes out to meet the Lord first. And the other thing we notice, notice there, that even though the sisters may be different, Both of them say exactly the same thing to him when he arrives. Exactly the same thing. They say, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Now, that's what we call a left-handed compliment. That's what the British call a backhanded compliment. I got one Sunday. You know what a left-handed compliment is? A left-handed compliment is a compliment that has some positive things in it, but it's got 
a little something negative in it which spoils the good part. And Sunday, after the first service, somebody that I knew walked by when people were greeting me, and he said, that sermon last Sunday was really good. I was standing with Jack and Holly Berger, and then then he just kept walking and walked away. And I said, well, I want to believe he was joking, but he kept a straight face, didn't he? And (laughs) Holly said, he sure did. (laughs) Well, you know, when Mary and Martha spoke to Jesus, they gave him a left-handed compliment. What did they say? They said, your power is so great that if you had been here, you could have turn back this terrible thing called death. But it was a left-handed compliment. Because the implication is, yeah, if you had been here, you could have done that. We're real impressed with your power. But your punctuality, now your punctuality, that's another thing. That, your punctuality leaves a little bit to be desired because the fact is, you weren't here. And our brother is just as dead as he would have been if you didn't have any power at all. Our brother is just as dead as he would have been if none of us had ever met you or knew anything about you. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And they had to wait for four days. And we've got to ask this question. At what point does Jesus stop becoming trustworthy? Does Jesus get four days? Can we trust him for four days? Can we trust him with suffering and even death for four days? What about 40 days? Does Jesus become untrustworthy on the 39th day? Is 40 days too long to trust him? What about 40 years? Can can Jesus be trusted for 40 years? Jesus become untrustworthy on the 39th year? Let me tell you something. I won't have to wait 40 years. Some of you in this room may have to wait 40 years to see the vindication of your faith. To see the Son of Man crowned and adored by angels. To see the ones whom you loved in Christ and in family who had died, raised, suffused with a power of life which is greater than any life that ever existed here. Some of you have to wait 40 years for that, but not me. I won't have to wait 40 years for that until I see the vindication of all the claims of the Nazarene. They had to wait four days. And they found that he was worth the wait. John the Baptist wasn't thinking about that. John the Baptist was hurting. And he didn't like it. And it damaged his faith in that moment. There's something that helps me. I I always cringe when I say this because it, it contains a phrase which is potentially blasphemous. And I only share the phrase because I have a reverent goal in mind, even though it sounds irreverent even to say it. And we never should say it unless we're working toward a reverent goal, and we should never say it without trembling. But I'm going to go ahead and say it. Forgive me. If I knew what God knows, 
Now, isn't that the, just about the most outlandish thing you've ever heard in your life? If I knew what God knows? I mean, what could be more far-fetched than the idea that I could know what God knows? Do you know that there's something even more outlandish than that? Do you know that there's something even less of a possibility than that, even less a reality than that, even more remote from the truth than the idea that I could know what God knows? That's the first part of the hypothesis. If I knew what God knows, now here's something much more outlandish, much more far-fetched. If I knew what God knows, and if I were good, if I knew what God knows, and I don't, And if I were good, and I'm not, I would do what God does. Do you believe that? You know, if you and I believed that, it would help. It would help. Now, there's something very important to know. And it is this. God will not prove his love for us by keeping us from suffering. Did you hear that? God will not prove his love for us by keeping us from suffering. And he will not prove his love for us by keeping those he, we love from suffering. He will not prove his love for me by keeping my wife from suffering. He will not prove his love for me by keeping my children from suffering. He will not prove his love for me by keeping my grandchildren from suffering. He will not. Do you know why? Because he will prove his love for me in a different way. He has already proven his love for me in a different way. God proves his love for me. And God proves his love for you by refusing to keep the one whom he loves from suffering. And you know what? That's enough. That's proof enough, isn't it? Are we degrading the sacrifice of God's only son by saying, that's not enough. I don't believe you love me because my family member died. Because my wife was suffering. Because I'm suffering. I don't believe you love me. The sacrifice of Christ is not enough. I got news for you. Now, here's what I did not say. I did not say that God would not protect you from suffering. I did not say that God would not protect those you love from suffering. I didn't say that. I said God would not prove his love for us in that way. Is anyone here this morning who's not suffering relatively? If that's the case in your life, you know why? Because of God's providence. Because of God's protection. Does any, is there anybody here today who has a family member who's not dead? Is anybody here today who has a family member who's not suffering? You know why? Because of God's providence. Because of God's protection. I didn't say God would not protect. And I didn't say that you could not petition God. I believe in God's providence. I believe that God protects us and keeps us from suffering. I didn't say I didn't believe that. What I said is that's not the way God proves his love for us. I believe in prayer. I believe in intercessory prayer. I believe in prayers of petition. I believe we can ask God to protect our children and our spouses and ourselves. I believe we can cry out 
to God, not to let us suffer, not to let us die. Of course, I believe in prayer, and I believe God often answers that prayer. But what I said was, God does not prove his love for us in that way. Now, I've gotten through half my points and almost all my time. Let me just move to the third point a little bit quickly. Um, I want you to notice the way Jesus reinforces his claims. Now, here's, here's really the blasphemous formula, okay? Which I, the potentially blasphemous formula that I utter for a reverent purpose. If I were Jesus, now I say that reverently and tremblingly, if I were Jesus, I wouldn't have given this answer. I would have said, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Don't you remember that day at the Jordan River? Don't you remember the day when my claims were authenticated with the voice of God? Don't you remember the miracle that you witnessed when the Holy Spirit descended upon me like a dove? Don't you remember that miracle you experienced? Of course I'm the one. And you know it through your own personal miraculous experience. He doesn't appeal to that. He appeals to the reports of miracles which were experienced by others. And then he appeals to one little verse in the Old Testament. Blessed is the one who does not stumble over me. Isn't that amazing? You know what it means? It means that the only authentication that he offered John the Baptist for his claims, even though he could have offered something much more dramatic, constitute the same bases that you and I have to believe his claims. The reports that Jesus did these things for others. So faith is required that the reports are true. The same kind of faith that it would take in John the Baptist to believe, even though he was an eyewitness, and even though he saw one of the greatest miracles in history, is the same faith that you and I are called to exercise. Have you ever said to yourself, well, I mean, if I was actually there, I had somebody say this to me night before last. If I was actually there and then I saw the miracles, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Most of the people who were there and saw the miracles didn't believe. No, you wouldn't. You would still have to exercise faith, and faith would still be costly. You would have to give up something that you don't want to give up, just like those who saw the miracles were not willing to give up certain of the things which faith required that they renounce. There are always rival claims to the claims of God, the claims of Jesus. It may be a woman. It may mean, it may be money. It may mean enmity toward a certain person. It may mean that you would have to forgive, and you don't want to forgive. You like to fondle your hatred of that person. You know why Islam is so popular? Because you get to keep your hatred. Jesus said, go tell John what's happening. And then amazingly, the fourth thing, and I know we're out of time, is the way he commended John the Baptist. Isn't it interesting that he did not brag on him in a way that he could hear the bragging? You know, when I look at what the disciples did and didn't do, I can know why it was impossible for Jesus to let a sigh escape when sometimes he said, how long am I going to have to put up with you guys? Then I read John 17 when he's praying to his father. You know what he's doing? He's bragging on them. He talks about how they kept his word in the world. And he says the most lavishly comp complimentary things about them. And I'm thinking, the disciples? I mean, you're talking about these 11 disciples? Wow. And he stood firm and he didn't indulge him. He didn't indulge his suffering. He called forth faith, a biblical faith, 
for him. He didn't say, you know, I know it's really hard for you. That's why I love Calvin so much. His 500th birthday was one week ago today. Um, Every apologist you read gives a lot of ground to the unbeliever to try to identify with the unbeliever, commiserate with him, sympathize with him, and to try to find a common ground for dialogue. Every Christian writer does that except for Calvin. Calvin does not give an inch. Every word Calvin writes makes you think God is perfect in every way. He's immaculate. He's worthy of all praise. We are filthy and hell-deserving. And don't you ever forget it. That's the thrilling thing about Calvin. Now, I'm out of time, but let me just say this. What on earth did Jesus mean when he said John the Baptist, that there was no greater born of woman than John the Baptist? I mean, good grief. Are you saying that Abraham is not greater than John the Baptist? Are you saying that Moses is not greater, that Joseph... And Daniel and David and Elijah are not greater than John the Baptist. Come on. What does that mean? And if that's hard to believe, what about the next thing he says? Every one of you who's a Christian is greater than the one who is at least as great as Abraham, David, Moses, Joseph, Daniel, Elijah, and Elijah. Wow! How could that be true? This is the only passage in the scripture where I am referred to personally. Even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. What could he mean? Just this, and then we, you can go to work. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, David, the great king, Daniel, the great prophet, the other great prophets, they saw a little something of Jesus. And they told a little something of Jesus. And they understood a little something of Jesus to help us see and to help us understand. But it was just a little piece of Jesus. John the Baptist represented, uh, introduced the whole person. Introduced the whole person. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But you know what? John the Baptist did not see and represent the whole work. You and I, those of us who are least in the kingdom of God, we see and represent and introduce something that John the Baptist was not able to introduce and to declare because he died before it happened. You and I not only introduce the whole person of Jesus to those who don't know him, but we introduce his death on the cross, his burial in the tomb, his bodily resurrection on the third day. You see, greatness, according to Jesus' reckoning, is tied to our connection with him and our capacity to show people who he is. Now, be great. Go out in 